So the series started uh, with me talking about how the Bible describes us as being married to God, sort of in this spiritual sense, that we are uh, married to God is to say that God loves us with a particular type of love. I described it as a, a beloved love, right? that God loves us with a, a love that is particularly deep and close and committed, um, that we are known and loved by God in a sense the same way that a husband knows and loves his wife. Um, we are loved with God with a beloved love. And last week I talked about how that beloved love is in each of us. Because God loves us this way, we are united to God by faith in Jesus. It means we're inseparably connected to that love. And because we're inseparably connected to that love, because that beloved love is in us, it means then we can love one another out of that beloved love. Um, that this love we have, that we talk about loving one another, it's, it's the same type of love that God shows towards us. And to think of it in that particular way, this deep, intimate, affectionate love. So in summary, if we sort of put it in one, one simple statement, you're beloved to me, and I'm beloved to you because we are all beloved to God in Jesus. That's, that's what we're talking about. That's what we're trying to explore. And then at the end of the sermon last week, I, I gave some practical examples of that. Because we're beloved to one another in Jesus, what are some specific ways in which we show that? And this was the list. I actually added one other thing to the list. Oh, it's missing on, on our list here. But the first one, I didn't have it on the list last week, but the one worth mentioning today is uh, we love each other with a beloved love through our words. Right? And so um, what we say to each other, what we say about each other, some other ways in which I think beloved love shows itself in the life of the church are, you see there are delight, intimacy, presence, commitment, initiative, passion, perseverance. So this week and next week, what I'm going to do is just pull one from this list and talk about sort of what that looks like practically, what I think that might sort of, man, how it shows itself and how God relates to us and how that should show itself and how we relate to one another. And the one that we'll look at this week is intimacy. Let me share just a, a quick anecdote. Uh, there's a kind of embarrassing thing that happens to me um, every so often uh, when I'm talking to people. Uh, especially happens when I'm talking quickly. And it especially happens when I'm talking to my kids. Uh, what happens is, you know, I'll, I'll, be, I'll be speaking and I'll, use, I'll refer to them as, as hun or babe. Right? This is, maybe this has happened to you. Right? I'll be sort of just talking and I'll say, Hey, babe, can you get the door? I mean, sorry, Maya, can you go get the door, right? <laughs> or I'll say, you know, <laughs> thanks, hun, for something. I'm like, no, thanks, Judah. Sorry, I didn't mean that, right? And it's, I'll use those words, and of course, people laugh when I say that. My kids make fun of me when I, whenever I do that. Um, because while I generally, I do love my kids, right? Uh, and I like most of the people I talk to. Uh, the <laughs> those words, hun, babe, I don't, I don't think of people that I just meet or even my own kids in that particular way. <laughs> those words, as much as I care about them, those words, hunter, hunter babe, right? Whatever words I think you use for that person in your life, those are referred to, I use them in reference to one particular person, right? my wife, Danae. Those words, behind those words, it's a signifier of the particularly unique relationship I have with my wife, Danae, the special relationship I have with her. Hunter babe is really an indication of the fact that I have what we would call an intimate relationship, particularly with my wife. So when we think of intimacy, what intimacy is, um, intimacy is that sense of unique closeness with someone else, unique connection with someone else. It's a relationship where you know the joy of being known and knowing someone else. It's a relationship where there's space for openness 
and vulnerability, where there's a space and you experience a sense of, of safety and security and refreshment. It's why we usually think of intimacy, especially in the context of marriage. I'd say marriage is particularly set up for intimate relationships. In marriage, you're committed to one person. You're going to live with this person. You're going to be with this person. It's a setup for a kind of relationship that's not meant to be casual, a kind of relationship that invites connection and openness, a kind of relationship that invites intimacy. So Adam Eve, in Genesis chapter 2, the Bible describes the relationship, and in the end of the chapter, it says they were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, we often think of that that, that verse, that, that phrase, they were naked and unashamed, and we think of it just literally, that they were physically naked with each other. But that word, not ashamed, says, I think it's more than just that, that they were okay being naked around each other, right? Saying they were unashamed is to say that they were able to be, in a sense, exposed to each other. And to say exposed, like exposed emotionally, personally, spiritually, not just physically, exposed in all these different ways, and to be exposed in the context of someone else and not feel regret or feel shame, or feel fear. Instead, they feel connection, they feel intimacy. In fact, you could say, to be so open with one another, and instead of being pushed away from each other, they're connected to each other, they were so able to have that, they were able to be one with one another. The verse right before it says they were naked and unashamed, it describes how they were two becoming one. So the two shall become one flesh, is how the Bible puts it. They were so connected, so intimate with each other, you could say they were one person. That opens up really what we're talking about when we say intimacy. Intimacy is meant to lead us to, the fullest expression of intimacy is meant to guide us into oneness. When I say intimacy, really what we ultimately want is intimate union, intimate oneness. It's that sense in which you're connecting with someone else over the course of all these conversations, interactions, and experiences. And I'm talking about good, bad, mundane up, down, uh, delightful, hard, all these different things that we experience with someone else, all those different conversations, interactions, and over time what it does is draw you closer to that person to the point that there is unity, there's oneness, where there's this flow of love and care between you and another person. It's a great thing, those moments when you experience that. That's why we say intimacy, when I talk about intimacy, Intimacy is meant to lead us eventually to oneness. To the fullest expression of intimacy is that intimate union, like we see in a good marriage. And that's why it's interesting and, and remarkable that everything I just talked about, the sense of, of intimacy, that sense of intimate oneness that you can have with someone else, it's amazing to think that the Bible uses those descriptions, those terms to describe how God wants to relate to us, the kind of relationship God wants to have with us It's that same way. Intimacy, intimate union with God. So Psalm 73, verse 28, talks about the goodness of being near to to God. Uh, Psalm 139, verses 1 to 3, talks about, notice there, how all our ways are intimately known by God or familiar to God. He knows all the depths of us. Amos chapter 2, verse 3, if you read that verse on the screens, God talks about his unique knowing of Israel, right? Of all the families of the earth, he uniquely knows Israel. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. That word know in the Bible, um, when the Bible uses that word know, by the way, it's, it's a sense of which God's not talking about just sort of casually knowing stuff about us. He's using the word know in the same way that a husband and wife know each other. The Hebrew word there is yada. It's the sense of intimately knowing someone. 
and being known by someone. That's, whenever the Bible talks about God knowing us, knowing Israel, it's in that sense. Intimate knowledge. Seeing the screens, Deuteronomy 7, verse, verses 6 to 8. God talks about how he especially sets his love on his people. Right? You are people holy to the Lord. He's particularly at the end of that, that last part of that verse. The Lord has set his love on you and chose you. It's speaking to a kind of particular commitment and affection for his people. Again, what I'm describing as an intimate unity and relationship with his people. You know, in different places in the Bible, God talks about how he's, he says to Israel, I'm your God, and you should have no other gods before me. You see in the Ten Commandments, you see in other places in the Bible. Other places in the Bible, God talks about how he's jealous for his people. You think about those, those terms, that terminology. What, what's God saying there? He's saying, I want an exclusive, intimate relationship with you. A particular relationship with you where I'm giving of myself to you and you're giving of yourself to me. I'm your God. Have no other gods beside me. It's just saying, like, we should be in this together. Just us. And all that goes with it. The kind of love that should flow between us. It's why, then, when Israel follows after idols, the Bible uses really strong words to describe how God feels about that. It describes it as adultery. So Hosea 5, Ezekiel 16, God says Israel is following these, worshiping these fake gods of the other nations. It describes it, God says, like, you're cheating on me. And you're doing it over and over and over again. You don't, you don't say that, you're cheating on me, to someone you got a casual relationship with. Right? Someone you, you, you hang out with every so often. You don't use that kind of language. For God, describe it that way. To say, it says, first of all, how upset, how angry God is about this. Because to cheat on someone that you have an intimate relationship with, I mean, that's like the deepest type of betrayal, isn't it? It's to say, and when Israel is falling after the other gods, it's, it's saying, like, we, we're choosing to be one with these other things besides you. And it's why God at one point says, I'm writing a certificate of divorce. Like, this is not working. How could you do this? You can't, you're not being faithful to me. I'm being faithful to you. You're not being faithful to me. It's why God speaks in that way. Because what God wants with people is not just to hang out, <laughs> not just to go for drinks every once in a while, right? not to just do hobbies. He wants unity. He wants oneness, intimate oneness. The problem, of course, is us. I mean, here we have God. The problem is not with God because it's interesting. God says, I should write this certificate of divorce. I'm writing it. I'm done with my people. And yet in the same breath, God says, I want to figure this out. <laughs> I'm still going to pursue you. God's love for us, his beloved love for his people, is it's a love that's persistent and steadfast. He continues to pursue us. So the problem is not with God. The problem is with us. Even though God should be done with us and continues to seek us, the problem is we and I'm not just talking about Israel, we human beings, our tendency is to give our affection, our desire, our commitment to other things. And frankly, to give it to other things that don't love us back, that don't care about us, that are happy to occupy spaces in our heart that we create and we give to them and, and they're happy to fill it. And I don't know what those things are for you, but it's all sorts of different things. I remember when I was in middle, middle school, how, it, how important I thought it was for me to be popular. I, I gave so much time and attention. I, and I thought like, I, I, if I wear this particular hat, that I just got, if I hang out with these kind of people, these kind of girls, then, you know, that, that will help me. If I'm good at sports, all these different things. All this time, all this attention to something that frankly was, it was like a ravenous pit. It was never enough. <laughs> You're never really popular enough. Right? Even those who were most popular in middle school, it was like, it was a, it was a fly, well, fly, it was a, con they're constantly trying. 
There are so many things, and you think about this right now in your heart, in your life, that you will give your affection, your time, and your commitment to. And it is doing a terrible job doing the same thing to you. It just takes from you. It just keeps taking from you. And you think you're getting something from it, being popular, being successful, being powerful, looking a certain way, whatever it is. And again, it's, it's different for each person, isn't it? And yet, if you really pay attention and take notice, what you're getting back is not nearly the same as what you're giving. It is an unequal relationship. And yet, we do this. We make them gods of our life. All these different things occupy our space, these spaces in our heart and soul that they're not meant to occupy. That's the problem, isn't it? We're meant for intimate union with God, but we tend to be unfaithful. We tend to put other things in the place of God. So here's God trying to lean towards us. We're not leaning towards him. We're leaning far away from him. We're opposed to him. We're against him. We're putting other things there. That's the problem. Thank God he solves it himself. What God does is solve it himself in and through Jesus. In Jesus, what we see is God bringing the barriers down. In Jesus, we see our sinful instincts, our unfaithfulness, our uncommitment to God, our sinful instincts and desires. God deals with it in Jesus. He atones for our sin. Romans 5.8 tells us this, but God shows us his love, his love, that's what we're talking about here, for us, in that while we were still sinners, still adulterous, still putting other things in God's place, Christ died for us. While we were still unfaithful to him. We weren't even like in the counseling room with him trying to work it out. <laughs> like we, we were way out on another continent, living our life. God sends Jesus to find us and to pursue us and to draw us back to himself. And by doing that, you see that clears the way for relationship with God. It clears the way for intimacy with God, for true union with God. Because what Jesus does is save us out of our sin. He atones for our sin, and then he retrofits our hearts. He gives us, the Bible says, new hearts, new lives. This idea of being born again is like he remakes us so that we have hearts that no longer are naturally giving their affection to other things. He gives us hearts that are finally paying attention to the only God who gives and gives and gives towards us. Who doesn't ask for us to equal what we give towards him. We can never equal what he gives towards him. Instead, he's constantly pouring out love into our lives, and it's out of that love that we're able to love him back. Romans 5.10 tells us this. For while we, were still, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. While we're enemies, we're reconciled to God through what Jesus did on the cross. Reconciled, that means like we're united to God. We're connected back to God. We're brought back to God and saved by his life. And so in view of that, we see in the New Testament now all these expressions of God's love for us, the relationship we can have with God, where we can be known by God and know him, united to God and because of Jesus. That's the key, isn't it? Now that Jesus is there, we can talk about this and know that, as I often say, it can stick, that it can work. So 1 Corinthians 8.3 tells us, if anyone loves God, he is known by God. To love God is to be known by God, intimately related to God, connected to God. Galatians 4, 8 to 9 describes how formerly we didn't know God, right? Formerly when you did not know God, here's what the things, you were enslaved to other things, to other gods, other things. But now you've come to know God and to be known by God, to have intimate relationship with God. 1 John 4, 7 to 8, the Apostle John, he refers to his believers as beloved, right? Encouraging us to love one another, 
Why? Because love is from God. And to love is to know God, right? Anyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. It means anyone who loves has intimate union with God, possible through Jesus. Of course, the sort of intimate union that we have with God and Jesus, that's most especially expressed and described in Ephesians 5, 31 to 32. Ephesians 5, 31, 32 is talking about human marriage and talking about how the husband and wife become one, the intimate union of marriage. And it says, this is a mystery, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. The intimate union of marriage is a signpost. It's a reflection of the intimate union we now have with God in Jesus Christ. This is why, this is John 17, verse 23. Um, Jesus prays for his followers, and he's asked that we might be perfectly one. Notice that, so that we can be intimately united in God and in Christ Jesus, so that the world may know you sent me and love them even as you love me. Because of this, because we have intimate union with God and Jesus, that is why then now we can talk about intimate union with one another. The connection you have with God is a connection that becomes a connection with other people, with other believers. Multiple times in the Bible, over and over, it talks about like, unity and having oneness, right? So John 17, you see that here. Other places are 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4. But that oneness with other Christians, with other people, with other people in the church, that oneness comes out of the fact that you have oneness, unity with God. As you're drawn close to God, have intimate union with him, you are drawn close to other people. You're able to have intimate union with other people. So John 17, verse 21. Jesus prays there that they may also be one, notice, in us, they mean us Christians, right? He's praying that we might be one, but how is that one is going to happen? How can we be one in God? It only comes because we're in the same place. We're in God, one with him. That's intimate oneness. And by virtue of that, that's how we can talk about oneness with each other. To think of oneness with each other and to think about it as an intimate oneness, about a love that's expressed in intimate unity. Now, as I said, we don't think in these terms often, I mean, we talk about love in the church a lot. I hear it. We should love one another. We should be about love. But what's interesting here and what I like about this, when we think about love through the prism of us being beloved to God and the fact that's an intimate love, is to add that word intimate means something a little bit more, doesn't it? I often say it's not about just putting up with people. It's about noticing one another, paying attention to one another to the point that you actually feel deep connection with each other, unity with each other, intimacy with each other. And that kind of love is not just possible for us, it is our legacy, it is our inheritance. It's what's been given to us by God because God has shown it towards us in Jesus. You've been intimately loved and united to God so that, not just that you might be known and loved by him, but that you might be known and loved by people, flesh and blood people who've also been known and loved by God. That's the sort of big tent of what I want us to sort of grab a hold of but let me sort of really break it down and talk practically. What might that look like? What are, and I'm going to give sort of three ways. I want to encourage us in view of the fact that intimate love has been shown towards us in God, that we might show that same type of intimate love in our church community. The first way I want to suggest is that intimate union in the church happens in an intimacy of emotion. I want us to see that emotions are a critical part of how we unite and connect with each other in the life of the church. Notice this, Acts 20, verse 19. Paul is describing his ministry to the Lord within the church. And here's what he says. He's talking to some elders from the Ephesian church. And he says, I was among you with all humility 
and with tears. Paul, apostle, has written amazing things, and yet he is expressing the fact that his ministry was shown in how often he cried among them, in the humility he had with, among them. 1 Corinthians 12, Paul talks about the intimate union we have with each other, that we're one body, and how that is shown, how, how, guess how that's shown in how we show care for each other, feeling the suffering of one another, sharing in the joy of one another. Romans 12, 15 talks about how community we have with each other. Here's, how, here's what it means. We rejoice with those who rejoice, and we weep with those who weep. It's describing relationships, not just in the sense of I know people, but I I feel things with people. See, emotional expression is a kind of nakedness in many ways that makes us more vulnerable, more revealing than even a physical nakedness. And that shouldn't be a surprise, that emotional expression in this way, in ways in which we open ourselves to that and we live that out, becomes an opportunity for union with each other, intimate union with each other. In the same way that God rejoices over you and weeps over you. That's the language the Bible uses. He rejoices over us, he weeps over us, he cares for us. In the same way that God does that, we who are in Christ Jesus can experience the same glory of that intimacy and blessing we receive from the Lord. In the same way that we then empathize and sympathize with one another. And to do so in the full range of the emotions God has given us. To know the freedom to laugh and cry, to lament, to rejoice. All those ways in which God has invited us to express it in the context of being in Christ such that we connect with each other and we connect with each other that makes us one with each other in the way the Bible talks about us being one. Now let's be honest, it's not easy for us. Um, we, are way more, we are way more prone to, to not open that aspect of us. <laughs> in our relationships. And so, you know, some of you, some of us, you may need to talk to a good friend, good counselor, maybe a good therapist, whatever you gotta do. <laughs> All those things are things that God has given us in our relationship with him, because it's how he shows himself towards us, that God uses these emotions to say something very real about how he expresses himself towards us. Of all the ways God could have talked about how he relates to us, he does use words like rejoice over us and weep over us. I mean, that fact that it's jealous over us says something about the passionate emotion God has about us. All those ways in which God shows himself towards us become part of how we show relationship with each other and that connects us to each other, that brings emotional intimacy, that brings intimate union with one another. So the intimacy of emotion. Another way, again, to think of intimate love unlocks things that we maybe don't think about but actually are there in the Bible. A second way I want to express, encourage us towards is the intimacy of what I'm calling appropriate touch in the church. <laughs> and I've said we have, to, we have to say that, but it's, it's important to say. Just think about this, how often Jesus touched the people he was with. It's all over the place. Jesus would touch the sick, children he put right in his lap, the blind woman, the woman touched his feet. I was like, I mean, people were shocked. Why are you doing that? The most ostracized, the most overlooked, the most untouched, Jesus especially noticed and drew near to them. He loved them and cared about them. And one of the ways he showed love and care about them was actually putting his hands on them, letting them be in his physical presence. Now, Jesus is God, the son of God. He was powerful enough to heal people with but a word. We see examples of that. He says, your, your son is healed, you can go. And yet Jesus' most regular practice was what? To be in the physical presence with people. Jesus could have just healed, he didn't have to, he could just hung out in like Nazareth 
and just be like, you're healed, you're healed, you're healed. You over there in Jerusalem, you're healed. You in Judea, done, right? He could have just done that for three years. And yet Jesus does his walking tour for three years everywhere, right? And it exhausts him even. Like all night, people are coming in to be healed by him. He didn't have to do that, and yet that's his regular practice. To heal people, he wanted to be in the same place with them and often touch them. What's it saying? It's saying something about the relationship he's inviting us into with him, of intimacy. And touch is a way of expressing that, isn't it? And touch, even in early church, was an important expression of intimacy. One of the things you see at the end of a lot of the letters from Paul is, he says, greet one another with a holy kiss, right? That word, holy kiss, not, not very prevalent in our culture, but in other cultures, in Haitian culture, what I grew up in, uh, cultures around the world, to sort of greet someone with a, a sort of a light kiss on the cheek was a way of expressing attention. In fact, I see you, right? But particularly if people you know, it's a way of showing I'm, re- I'm connected to you. And I think it's interesting in the life of the church, this, this call from Paul, this command from Paul, greet one another in a holy kiss. You're talking about people who just got put together, <laughs> right? You're talking about Jews and Gentiles, masters, slaves, rich, poor, all these different people brought together who would normally not be together, who normally wouldn't want to even be in the same room with one another, and Paul is encouraging them, telling them, greet one another. Don't just greet one another. Use the same practices that you would do with the people you're most close with. Greet one another with a holy kiss. It's a marker, isn't it, of the intimate union we have with Jesus and with one another. Now, there's been mis- and misuse and abuse of, of touch in all sorts of places. And sadly, in the church, uh, people have been abused by this in terrible, lifelong, and damaging ways which makes it all the more important to redeem this, to bring back the holiness to it. That sense of the holy kiss as a way of intimate union with one another. How does that look like? It's gonna look different in our culture, right? We don't have that same practice that they do in other cultures. Communities and different cultural practices have to work this out. Communities, especially where touch has been abused and misused, have to think way carefully about what this looks like, right? Um, It may be limited. But because it's limited, it doesn't mean there are not ways for us to do this. I think God is the model of Jesus and the life of the church tells us there's ways in which we practically express our intimacy with each other in that physical presence we have with one another, even the physical touch. It might be the the holding of hands in prayer, (laughs) the significance of just that. We're coming to God together in prayer, and I'm expressing that by my physically holding of hands with you. It might be the the hug of greeting we give one another in our culture or... um, for those who you have a safe and healthy relationship with, the legit hug you give them. <laughs> the legit hug of, of love and care that you have with those kind of people. It might be as simple as the hand on the shoulder for someone who you know needs it. Especially someone who, who, who needs your prayer. And rather than just sort of move away from them, you move closer and you put your hand on them and you pray God's blessing on them and the significance of that. All those ways are ways in which we express a spiritual reality. We're intimately united to God, and because of that, we're intimately united to one another. Last one I want to mention here, the intimacy of shared worship. To worship God in the same space on a regular basis, that is inherently an intimate act. It's a bonding act. It connects us to each other. Because we're all in Christ, there's a resonance to when we're praying together in the same place, hearing the Bible read together in the same place, singing together in the same place, uh, taking communion together in the same place. Um, you know, it's those times when you're looking around the room, and it's, it's, there's times like this that's happened at Roosevelt over the many years where there's something beautiful, uh, can I say almost magical happening? Glorious that's happening. 
And it's not because we look great, right? It's not because we're singing in, in great harmony. There's something significant that's happening here in those moments. And, and, and you're almost, you're not even aware of yourself. Right? You're not, you're, you, you don't care about what people see you saying or, or doing, whatever it is. It's in those moments, what we're doing is we're experiencing the greatness of God. And we're realizing that greatness together. And that greatness of God, experiencing that greatness and worship together is intimacy. It connects us, doesn't it? To be connected to God is to be connected to one another. It's intimate love we show by saying, I'm willing to be with you and, and yet again, seek God together and see what he does when we're doing that together. There's a, a revival happening, it seems, in, in Asbury right now. I don't know if you've heard some of the reports. And it's interesting, as I've been reading a little bit about it, how simple what's happening there. Oftentimes we think of revival, people like falling out their seats, right, and rolling down the aisle, that kind of thing. That's not what's happening from what I've been reading. It's actually, I mean, you might say it was almost dull, right? Some Bible reading, some singing, lots of prayer and testimony. We should not be surprised that God works in those spaces. We should not be surprised. Of course he does. To say, I'm before you, God, connecting me to you, and to be connected to you is to be connected to one another, does, of course God works that way. We should expect him to work that way. Now, granted, we've done a lot to take the intimacy out of shared worship together, um, to make it largely soulless, to make it more of a production. I mean, leave it to American Christianity to find a way to take intimate, sacred worship and to make it something you just show up for. All right? I mean, we're good at it, right? We are very good at taking something that involves people coming together in the same space and saying, how can we do it more efficient? Uh, how can we make it uh, brighter and shinier? Uh, how can we make it more entertaining? Right? We should not be surprised that we do that. Uh, and so no wonder it feels that way. No wonder, no wonder it feels more like something I attend rather than something I participate in. We've taken the intimacy and the sacredness out of shared worship. So again, all the more to redeem it. That there, it's still there. Even though we've twisted and corrupted, we've got to rewind the clock. And begin to again say, how might we approach and plan and think about the times we come together and worship such that we experience what God intends us to experience when we're together in his presence. His sense of intimate love for us, our union with him. And because of that, sense of intimate love and union with each other because we're together doing it. How about you open yourself up? How might you pray that prayer? God, make me open to intimacy with you and intimacy with others every time I'm in the same room, singing, praying, talking about you with other people. Communion, of course, is one of the most significant ways we do that. That's something we, we, we very practically do, we participate in, that reminds us and helps us be intimately united to God and to one another. Every time we take communion, it's a reminder of how we're fully in Christ, and Christ is fully in us. This is 1 Corinthians 10, 16. It's not the cup of thanksgiving. Oh, that's the wrong verse. Um, I think I gave them the wrong verse. I'll read it. It's not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks. Oh, it is. A, bless, a participation in the blood of Christ. And the blood that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? My translation is a little different. That's why I was thrown. Um, think, notice the, the language there. The cup of blessing that we bless is not a participation. Notice that word there. Every time we take the cup, we're participating together in something. We're uniting together. The bread that we break in communion, is it not a participation, a union together in the body of Christ? That's why Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, four times at least in that chapter, he talks about coming together. Communion is not something to do in the corner by yourself. Communion is something we come together to do. Why? Because it's saying something. 
You're uniting to God, you're uniting to other people. It's why the Bible talks in that same chapter about examining one another, examining ourselves before we take communion. Examining yourselves, not to say you got everything together and that you got your act together. That's the only way you can come and take the bread and take the cup. It's examining yourself and to say, I need what you only can provide, Jesus, and I need it together with these other people. I examine myself to say, and you shouldn't come to the table. You should take the bread. You shouldn't take the cup unless you're willing to admit, I need you, Jesus, and I need Jesus together with the other people here. And we come to participate together in what only God has provided in and through Jesus Christ. And guess what? Every time you show up, he gives it. Every time, if you, if you pray that prayer, God will answer it, right? Sometimes you're like, this guy answer prayers. Here's one, 100% guarantee, works every single time. Lord Jesus, I come to the table to get what only you can give. Give it to me. Give it to me in connection with the others here. He always does it. You know, intimacy, let's just admit, intimacy is a risk, isn't it? Um, to invite someone to be close to you, to receive them, not just into your life, into your heart, and to be received by someone else into their life, into their heart, it's a risk. And no wonder, then, a lot of us don't take that risk. It's too dangerous. Given human failures, human weaknesses, uh, human sin, we don't take that risk. It doesn't seem worth it. Fortunately, God takes the risk, doesn't he? When we stop doing thinking about us, we realize intimacy only has a chance when we base our efforts in the God who for sure did not need intimate union with us. The Bible talks about God having perfect intimacy. Everything was there. He already had intimacy in and of himself. And yet God takes the eternal risk to create space in himself to receive you, to invite you to participate in what he already had perfectly, to create space for you to be received into him and us to be, him, him to be received into us. That's why the more we're connected to God in Christ and the more we let Christ fill all the parts of our heart and soul, that's how the space is created. Not by you doing it, by Jesus working the magic of God <laughs> in your heart and soul. That's how the space will be created for you to take that risk. The risk of intimacy with him and because of intimacy with him, intimacy with others. Intimate love and unity with other people. Let's remember this. God's beloved love is already in you. It's already in you. It's already in the soil of your heart. And so what we got to do is just be willing to hang out there together. <laughs> hang out there for a while in the soil of God's beloved love. And the more we hang out there, automatically harvested from us will be love, will be unity, will be intimacy with each other. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time and for Jesus and for all that we have in and through him. And Lord, uh, I do pray for um, Lord, how we might um, more and more um, know you and follow you um, and love you. Lord, thank you, Lord, for the, uh, the fact that, Lord, when we were still enemies, when we were still sinners, um, you died for us. Um, you pursued us and you united yourself to us. Thank you for creating space in the eternal Godhead for us to be connected to you in this way. And because of that, Lord, help us, Lord, then to love each other in the same way. First, to, 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 see, to imagine it, Lord, to see that, Lord, intimate love with you is intimate love with each other. And to then be willing to express that in all the ways you've given us. The ways, Lord, that uh, you bless, Lord, the fact that people have known you in love and can know others, others in that same love. Lord, um, Lord, make relationships with others, Lord, who've also found Jesus, Lord, make them, Lord, 
truly special and unique, <laughs> worthy of the term beloved when we think of other believers, worthy of all the ways in which, Lord, um, you've given us, Lord, your grace, your love, your mercy, all, this, all, the, all the things, Lord, that come with the fruit of the Spirit, Lord, make our relationships full of those things. Um, Lord, help us to confess our sins. Help us to participate regularly in the things that remind us of what we have and reinforce what you've given us. Lord, may that happen more and more in the life of your church. And thank you, Lord God, that you're the one who does this. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.